Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is one of the most impactful entrepreneurs I've investigated in my lifetime. This podcast could go for 12 hours because just when I get done talking about his his innovation in the car world, we got movies, he's a pilot, he's, he's an entrepreneur outside of the car industry. Yeah. Joining me today is the founder and CEO of Car Saver, Chad Collier. Chad, how are you today, buddy? I am great. Thank you for the opportunity to come on. Well, I'm, I'm honored to have you on. It's been... Uh, it's been a wild ride on, on my uh, podcast lately with all of the entrepreneurs that I've had on and all the cool stories, but reading through your highlight reel, holy smokes, this is going to be fascinating. One of the things I do love about your story is the fact that you didn't, you weren't born rounding third base in the car industry. You actually started as a lot attendant. What is it about the car industry? Because it's obvious that you have a passion for cars in the car industry. What is it about the car industry that has sparked a level of creativity and entrepreneurship and innovation that has taken you to multiple companies to where you are right now at Car Saver. You know, I uh, I love the I love the auto industry, and one of the reasons why I love it is people love cars. Um, the problem is people love cars, but they don't like buying them, and that's been my passion from the very beginning. Is man, how can we take such a joyful experience, an experience that literally is, for most people, the second largest purchase they will ever make in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And there is tremendous joy. I remember my first car. And man, when I got that car, I had this sense of freedom. I had this sense of just being able to go anywhere I wanted. And the joy to go show all my friends and family my, my car. And it wasn't it wasn't a show off car, but but uh, but for me it was at that mm. time. And when you look at people who make an auto purchase, there's so much joy in that. And usually it's tied around some big life event. So that could be a, you know, they graduated, they got a new job, they got married, they had a baby, they got a promotion. Usually an auto purchase is tied to some type of great life event, mm -hmm. and. Uh, there's a lot of joy in that. And the problem is you get that joy, but then at night when you go home, you lay your head on your pillow and often think, man, did I get taken advantage of? And first of all, you spent five or six hours at the car dealership, wasted a whole lot of time making this purchase. And then you have to have at nighttime, your joy is stolen from the nervousness about, did I get taken advantage of? Mm -hmm. And so... 
that's been our passion from the very beginning is, man, how do we become a, a joy factory? And how do we let people experience the joy of auto and just make it fast and easy? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, so I guess what I'm trying to say there, Virgil, is mm-hmm. when I say make it fast and easy, it doesn't have to take five or six hours to yeah. purchase a car. It could be much, much quicker. Like to me, you just exactly covered the frustration. Like I love cars too, but I rue going to the dealership because I feel like I just got my forerunner. I got it out of the lease and I just purchased it after the lease. I don't, they're not having to do anything literally other than uh, my lease is up and I've chosen to buy the car through Toyota financial. I mean, hello. Yeah. It's a tap in literally three inches from the hole. <laughs> Can't miss it. I was there for four hours and 45 minutes and I'm like, how, wh- what's going on? Are you like making me wait for us? What's the deal? And like, I'd be fascinated. How did you figure out how to circumvent the delays? And did you have to actually see what goes on in the dealership and to see where all the hangups and the slowdowns are so that you could nip them in the, in the butt and put them into your, to the car saver, my idea, because that to me, how much, how much time have you think, how much time do you think you've taken off of the purchase process and how did you come to that? Well, when you say uh, when you say car buying, I could just feel with both of us there was this nervousness. All of a sudden, this like anxiety builds up when you just say car buying. Uh, now, for me, that three foot putt, I also get that same nervousness. So <laughs> yeah. I can feel that anxiety of that three foot putt because that's the last one you want to miss. But uh, you know, it can take literally four to five hours to to purchase a car and. With what we do at Car Saver, you can you can buy a car in 20 minutes or less, and literally, in the palm of your hand, have all the information you need to make an informed decision, and click and buy and have that car delivered to your door in less than 20 minutes. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm never doing anything else ever again. <laughs> this is so exciting. I mean, I almost like I almost chose. To delay it another week just because I'm like, I don't know if I want to waste like a beautiful 85 degree day yeah. to sit in this lot. I mean, sitting in this uh, at the store waiting for something that I know is going to take way longer than they say. Oh, this would be quick and easy. Four and a half hours later, I'm still having signed out. I'm like, God, this is. A yeah, nightmare. nobody has time for that. I mean, four to five hours today. We, we've had the pleasure of working with Walmart since 2016. We power Walmart's auto buying program. Uh-huh. And Walmart did a study with their consumers, and Walmart's always been known for um, save money, live better. That's their, that's their motto, and Walmart is religiously lives behind that. And every decision they make is how do we help our customers save money and live better? And one of the things they do is they survey Walmart shoppers about what's most important to them in their lives. And savings always is important. Mm -hmm. But um, in 2017, they had a survey result that came back. And for the first time ever, time was as important as money. And so saving time from Walmart shoppers was uh, scored higher than saving money. Wow. And... So I think I think often we discount the value of time, and everybody wants to to save a lot of money on a car purchase. But 
in reality, uh, there's not a lot of markup in cars. It, you would think that, oh, man, there's huge markup and you can really get you know taken advantage of. But there's about a 6% markup in a car. Go buy a Rolex. It's got about a 40% markup. Yeah. So there's not a lot of markup there. Now, there's deals out there and there's rebates and incentives and different things. But, but really, your time, if you look at how valuable your time is from having to spend five hours at a dealership, but that doesn't include all this, all the time you spent online researching, going online so that you didn't feel like you got taken advantage of when you got to the dealer. Uh, so it can be a, you know, you can spend days and days doing an automotive purchase. Yeah. Um, and so that's always been our mission is how do we make it faster and easier? So uh, without giving away all the secrets, what were the key, what were some of the key pieces that you were able to implement at CarSaver that is thus made it so successful? You know, so I, uh, the technology is a big piece of it. Now that we can make the purchase in, in our hand on a, on a mobile phone, um, the technology is really what has made it seamless. And we've been building a technology platform to automate the key processes of an automotive purchase uh, for a decade. Mm-hmm. And the, the challenge with automotive is the entire automotive industry is built around a traditional sales process. So it wasn't built around a technology sales process. It was built for you to go into a dealership. And when, when dealerships first opened, it was a huge, joyful experience. You'd bring your whole family there and everybody would enjoy going down to the local car dealership and making that purchase because mm-hmm. it's such a big event. But then it it became you know stifled with negotiation and having to spend hours dealing with a salesman that, you know, he's paid to negotiate against you. And he has to negotiate against a sales manager who's negotiating against him. And then there's a F&I manager that you got to go into this little glass office. And that's where uh, we get a lot of feedback from consumers that there's a lot of anxiety around the F&I office. And people want to have protection. They want to be able to have insurance and make sure they've got a car that gives them peace of mind where if it breaks down, but they don't want to spend two hours negotiating with a with a, a salesperson in a glass office to have to do that purchase. So really adding transparency to all those layers mm-hmm. and connecting the dots of technology and automation. And really, I'd say the biggest thing we did is we gave consumers transparency. We gave them all the same information that the dealership had. And when everybody's on the same page, it's much easier and faster to make a decision mm-hmm. where the lack of transparency is where there's a lot of anxiety and, and fear yeah. that, man, am I getting taken advantage of? When everybody's on the same level playing field, it's much easier to come to a, come to a decision. That is so interesting. Wow. It's fascinating to me. Like, where did the entrepreneurial spirit come from? Because you became the youngest non-successor, as in, like, you didn't come from the daddy's money or daddy's car, car lot, so to speak. You became the youngest owner of a, of a, of a, of a Ford dealership at age 26, as you started as a lot attendant right out of the gate, that's a pretty quick transition from lot attendant to owning the dealership. What got in you, or is that just part of the family? Is that part of the DNA? Or did you find that your level of passion was just so almost innate that it exploded and took you into this direction? You know, I, uh, I think, first of all, a lot of it started from my dad. My dad uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. My dad owned a bank and built one of the 
fastest growing banks in the state of Oklahoma, started it out of a trailer and was wildly successful with the bank. And then he started a asbestos removal company when asbestos removal was, was a big thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started an asbestos removal company that was super successful and had kind of semi-retired and then decided to get into the car business. So my dad was, was the first in the car business. Uh, when I was in high school, he got into the car business, and that's when I started washing cars. But I've always been kind of entrepreneurial from... My earliest days, I remember in, in uh, fourth grade when, uh, when my dad had the bank, I, uh, I had taken, back then Polo was like a big brand, Tommy Hilfiger, mm-hmm. there was a brand called Colors, and then of course Nike. And I would take a piece of paper and I would trace the logo on a piece of paper. And so I would have Polo paper or I'd have Nike paper. And I started bringing this paper to school, and people, my friends and everybody, wanted the paper. So I found out that every kid in my class had a quarter every single day because the janitor sold popcorn, and popcorn was a quarter. And so I would, I would encourage the kids, instead of buying popcorn, to buy polo paper. And I started selling every single day. Every kid would buy five sheets of polo paper, for that quarter. And my business, I like at night, I would go home and I was tracing these logos every single night. And one day after school, I went to, I went to my dad's bank and I was sitting at his secretary's desk and she walked over to this machine and put this piece of paper in this machine and she pushed a button and it went and a piece of paper came out. And I said, what is that? And she said, that's a copy machine. It's a copy machine. How, how does that work? She said, oh, well, you, whatever you put in here, like, look, you can put your hand in here, and it'll make a copy of your hand. Or you can put a piece of paper. And I said, well, can I copy this paper? And I had just done some of my tracing. And she says, yeah. How many copies do you want? <laughs> I said, oh, man, I've just automated the paper factory. So she, she literally prints me hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper and my dad comes out ready to go home, and I have this just stacks of paper. And he says, what is that? I said, I got polo paper. And so I was in business. I had automated my whole, whole business. And <laughs> that, was, uh, that was my first, my first time at making money and, uh, and really being entrepreneurial. And, uh, and, man, I've loved it ever since. Yeah, there, it's an enticing it's – a, it's a drug, entrepreneurship is. You know, with all the all the things that I've been fortunate to do, it's what gets me up. You know, and especially if you if you spread it out into different fields, so to speak, it keeps you fresh. You know, and I, uh, it's obvious that you've definitely been able to spread it out to keep it fresh and keep you excited. And obviously, one thing leads to another, which leads to another, and the more successful you get, hopefully, it just keeps on building. Wow, now that is cool. How did you get away with? With all the, the the Nike and the Polo stuff, did you just traced over it? Is that what you did, or did you like you press it up and you just kind of like so, so scribble I would, on I, yeah, it? Yeah, I would I would put the paper over the over the logo and then just trace it, you know, lightly trace it with pencil <laughs> and then erase, you know, erase around it. So it took work. I mean, it literally yeah. to to trace the thing. 
I'm sure I'd be in all kinds of copyright issues and everything else. I, I had to wait a long time before I told that story. That was, you know, 30 years ago. That 30, is so More great. than 30 years ago. That so. is absolutely fantastic. Well, I, you, uh, you also become very, uh, very important in the speaking world as it comes to the car, the car innovation platform. And if you study like what people are the most scared of in the world, public speaking is right up at the top of the heap. Do you enjoy uh, standing up in front of others, sharing your vision and your ideas, or did that take some time to practice? Were you good at it immediately because your passion was so high, or did you have to like get coached through it? You know, I think um, that's a it's an interesting question because. Um, I've always been passionate about it. I've always been passionate about sharing vision and passionate about the automotive industry. So um, I like to think I've been good at it from the beginning, but I've always been nervous. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, going and talking to a big crowd like that, there's certainly uh, anxiety and uh, and you get nervous. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, it's always been... I'm nervous right before, but then once it's showtime, it kind of the nerves just kind of go away. Mm-hmm. And what I found is if you're honest and you're just telling a story and you're just sharing what you know with like-minded people who want you know are interested in what you're talking about, um, there's really no, nothing to be nervous about. Yeah, um, it's when I over prepare. I'm trying to, you know, man, I want to. I want to make this presentation be even more than it has to be. Yeah. That's where that's where I can get over my skis and get in trouble. Mm-hmm. If you're just authentic and just tell your story and tell people what, you know, whatever your your content that you're trying to deliver, um I've found that it's just so much more successful. Yeah. You know, Peyton Manning talks about, you know, nervousness is a direct sign of unpreparedness right like if you if you feel pressure the pressure of the anxiety it's because you're not prepared i have i have spoken many times but i spoke speak mainly on golf i mean i could literally talk about golf until i'm blue in the face and it's no i mean i could like i could have no a warning they could just call me out Virgil, you're gonna go up here and speak for 30 minutes on the golf swing i mean i literally wouldn't even be nervous i could just it doesn't phase me but when i had to do my ted talk recently mm. And you factor in, you know, TEDx is a big brand. It's a once in a life, once in a lifetime opportunity yeah. for most people. I will tell you, I have spoken in front of ten thousand people, but it was about the golf, about golf stuff. It was so easy, and even though I'm looking out there like I can't believe I'm doing this, <laughs> it was not hard. But when I stepped onto the TEDx platform and the reputation that that place has, it spins in your head about how perfect you have to be. And I just remember one of the big wigs at TEDx was in the green room as I was getting ready. to. I was like five minutes from coming on. And he said something to me that really shifted my, my brain. He says, I, I can tell that you're, you're an achiever. Like you always want to be the best. He says, you got to remember something. When you step on that stage, you're trying to deliver perfection. But absolutely nobody else in the room knows what you're going to say other than you. Mm-hmm. So just relax because nobody is judging you based on how you deliver the message. They don't know what you're going to say. Just go out there and deliver your message. So I would, like, I would five minutes before, 
I could, I could have thrown up on myself. And then he talked to me, and he's just like, listen, you got this. I've watched you. You've sent me all your videos to be approved. You got this. Just remember, the only person who knows what you're going to say is you. So just go up and relax and just let it go. And I was like, well, that was I needed to hear that. Yeah. And it was the perfect timing. And I stepped on stage, and like almost every other zone or flow state experience that we have in our lifetime, I don't really remember much. I just know that in my little window of time that I had to crush it, the part that I needed to deliver, I delivered perfectly. Mm. Everything else, like I, like the whole buildup was for one line to hit. And then when I hit that line, the rest of it was going to be smooth. Yep. It was, but, but I had to be, because I had to build it. I just had to let my my 14-minute speech marinate for like six minutes for the buildup for me to hit them with it. And those six minutes took two hours, it seemed like, <laughs> because you, 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 you know you have something that is going to impact people, and then you have to wait for it. Yeah. And with the rushing, like the, your mind racing faster than your mouth is moving, is one of the biggest challenges. But one of the things I try to tell people we, about nervousness, nervousness provides you the energy to deliver something greater than you could without it. And without the nerves, which then leads to that, that crossroads, that energy puts you right up on a crossroads between excitement and anxiety. And which one is almost always a, an attitude choice. You get to choose, are you excited to do this? Or are you anxious to mm-hmm. do this? And I haven't really had any training, but I've had like people give me lines, like just sentences to think about before. I go speak. And that's the one that really impacted me the most was, you know, and then I can, I can use that for everything that I do in coaching golf is like, of course you're nervous. You've worked your entire life for this moment. Now you, sh- you have the choice. Are you going to be anxious about it? Are you going to be excited about it? Because in the brain, it's registered the same and it's a choice. And when you choose to be excited about the opportunity, things go infinitely better than if mm-hmm. they if you go about it in an anxious mindset. And that was just wondering like if that was your experience when you get up on the stage is the energy is there for you and because you're in your sweet spot it allows you to propel yourself forward. You know, I've learned that um I don't think I've ever got up and spoke where I wasn't some level of nervous. And I think for me is when I learned to just embrace it yeah. versus trying to control it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to control being nervous, you get more nervous. Yeah. And if you just embrace it and say, you know what? This is a big stage. There's a lot of people here spending their time to listen to what I may have to say. Um, I should embrace that. Yeah. And there's, there's no problem with being nervous. 100%. And just that being able to just kind of relax in the moment um, for me, I think, is, is really that switch. But it's funny when you talk about, at your TEDx, that one guy who took just a minute to say something to you that still resonates today, still impactful today. Um, that, that's been one of the things I've seen in, in, in my life is there's those moments of somebody who said, sometimes it can be so little. He probably says that to everybody that gets up there, but man, it made an impact to you mm-hmm. and gave you confidence in that moment. And in that moment, you had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people 
on the TEDx platform. And that that moment, though, still resonates with you today and gives you confidence in a lot of the things you're doing. 100%. And it's just amazing how those little moments of time when you have a chance to, to speak into somebody, give them courage, give them confidence can make such a difference, such a difference. And there's this weird, as a, as a spiritual person, right? There's this place between the gifts that have been given to you and the striving to bring out the best in that gift that you have. And then there's these little intangible God-like angels that he sends down to you at the right moment, at the right Hmm. time that are inexplicable. And anybody who doesn't believe in a higher power, it's it's befuddling to me. I, I was given a gift to be able to communicate. I've had enough success coaching that people want to hear what I have to say. But, oh, but I'm on a new platform, a much bigger platform. My goodness, I'm nervous. <laughs> and then it's like God sent an angel down. I don't know this person. Yeah. And he just put his arm on my shoulder, like from behind. Like at first, I, I, you could just tell that I was pacing. And, I would, and he just like put his arm on my shoulder. And has delivered about 17 words. And then I've never seen him again. And it was just like, those are the moments that you have to know that there's something bigger than just you traipsing around this planet until it's over. I mean, to me, that is, I've heard you talk about the the flow and the the zone. And um, to me, that's when you're in the zone. When you're using your God-given talents to make a difference. And... Um, you know that um, you're in the right zone. And when you're in that zone, you can make a massive impact. And, you know, I think a lot of it, too, is when um, you can approach that TEDx talk and you can approach that saying, man, what's this going to do for me? Or you can approach it and say, what's this going to do for the audience that I'm trying to convey this message to? Mm -hmm. And when we're in the right mindset, it's about the people that we're talking to and the impact that we hope we can make off of what we have to say from all the things we've learned and the people who've impacted us and the talents that God gave us. And if we can use those to glorify Him, but also to make a difference in this world, um, that's when we're in the zone. Yeah, 100%. You know, another thing that I find fascinating in like understanding what goes on inside the body when we're when we're in these moments is when you're doing something to help others to benefit others when your message is bigger than yourself that is to me the most important and tangible and i think what what streamlines out of your message for who you are and what you've become is the fact that you've been successful because you have done something that God gave you a talent for, but what you've done is you've, you've used your talent to simplify better or ease life for many, many people. And the ultimate gift is when somebody gives you something that allows you to give back to humanity. And in some ways your, your job impacts a significant amount of families around the world and you've made it easier and more enjoyable and more streamlined and that is the gift. Was there a moment that you remember where you were able to like align a system or a process that you've kind of employed around everything that you do that streamlined the big picture 
into a very small but very precise picture. You know, we often talk about trying to take the ocean and put it into a Dixie cup. Mm -hmm. And automotive is an ocean. It is a huge, huge industry. And when you buy a car, it is a very complex transaction. You're purchasing an automobile, which auto is, I think, the second largest industry in the world. Wow. Not only are you purchasing an auto, you're financing it for most consumers. 90% of the time, you're financing or leasing the vehicle. So now you have lending financial institutions involved. You're insuring that vehicle so that you have protection. You're buying protection products. You're going across four of the largest industries in the world in one transaction. Yeah. And it is super complex. And there's a lot of anxiety that goes into it. And so we've always tried to say, hey, how do we make this simpler? How do we take this vast ocean, put it into a Dixie cup so that you can drink it with one simple drink and it's simple? Well, I would say one of the best ways we've done that is uh, we work with a lot of lenders and we've created a program called Upgrade. And what Upgrade does is we use artificial intelligence, data, and science to analyze auto loans. And we take those auto loans and we basically analyze for when a customer can get a brand new car for the same or lower payment than the one they have. And in that moment of time, we offer them an upgrade from their lender. And so imagine you're two, three years into a car loan. Um, you've, you've got this car. It's just about out of warranty now, but you're comfortable with the payment. You don't want to go you know, buy a new car because it could be expensive. Mm-hmm. And you get a message from your bank saying, hey, we'd like to upgrade you to a new car for the same or lower payment than the one you have. And here's a personalized site for you that you can click and see your exact payment on all the cars that you could upgrade into. And if you see one you like, click a button and you can have it delivered to your to your house this afternoon. <laughs> That's simple. Heck That's yeah. easy. That's awesome. And so, but what I love about it is the whole meaning of upgrade is it's focused on you and upgrading you, upgrading your your vehicle that you're going to spend a lot of time in, your vehicle that brings you joy and giving you an upgrade. I'm not trying to this isn't about selling you something. This is about giving you more than what you have today mm-hmm. for the same budget that you're already spending. And so we love the upgrade concept. It, uh, we do it in most of, the, uh, most of the partners we work with. We, uh, we do the upgrades, and customers love it. They Heck, love it. Yeah, that sounds incredible. What a great idea. Because when, when that makes you feel like everything is better for you, yeah. everything is better for you. You know, what one of the beautiful. other things we do is um, when you buy a car from carsaver.com, every vehicle comes with a lifetime warranty. And the lifetime warranty covers the engine, transmission, and drive shaft. Unlimited time, unlimited miles. And so as long as you own that car, you'll never have to pay an engine or transmission repair ever. And so the peace of mind that that provides a consumer and I remember I've had, uh, I've had great times in my life, and I've had times in my life where we were on a tight, tight budget living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think, I think one of the blessings is 
I look back at those times and I think I was as happy in those times as when some of my most successful times. Um, there's joy in those times. Yeah. But where I was where I was getting to with that is there was times when I didn't have a I didn't my window didn't work on my car and I couldn't afford to go to a restaurant. I'd go to a fast food restaurant. So you're pulling up to McDonald's and you have to open up the door to order. And then open up the door to pay when you get to the... Because your window doesn't roll down. Uh Um, Those are humbling times. But I still had a car that would go. My Mm -hmm. engine still worked and my transmission still worked. And those can be... We've had repairs that cost over $20,000 on an engine or transmission. Those can be very expensive. And those are the repairs that, man, not everybody has $20,000 sitting in in their bank account to be able to pay for unexpected repair. And they always happen at the, at the worst time, for right? Sure. <laughs> right before Christmas, right before <laughs> when you need it the most, that's when, uh, that's when something happens. So we're, uh, we love being able to provide that peace of mind. And I think about a, uh, a single mom who is living paycheck to paycheck, doing everything she can to provide for those kids. She's, she's, has them, you know, in every school program she can she can put them in. They're playing baseball. They're and all that stuff's expensive. Mm-hmm. All that stuff costs a ton of money. You got to buy the cleats. You got to buy the equipment. You got to pay the dues. Um, and so for her not to have to worry about a car running and have to make a a major unexpected repair, um, that brings me joy. Heck yeah! What a wonderful service and idea man way to go what would the advice be that you'd give the your 18 year old self that you know now that you didn't know then oh man um you know i think definitely i would uh i would say to take the time to enjoy the moments when i was 18 years old i was running fast and I I was having fun, mm-hmm. but I wasn't enjoying the moments. And taking the time to enjoy the moments that we have, I think are uh, the older I've the older I've gotten. Um, definitely, that's uh, I'd say that's one of the biggest things I would I would have told myself is slow down and just enjoy this moment. Yeah, it's a weird balance between. The things that drive the uber successful is what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. Just always looking forward, always looking to go, 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 go. Because that energy is kind of what we're addicted to. Mm -hmm. And then there's that also like taking time to smell the roses. And then that middle ground you have, there are some people that say, now is not the time to enjoy your moments. And I'm as I've gotten older, I'm like, wow, have I missed things because but the hamster in my wheel is in full Usain Bolt mode. (laughs) I mean, it is like, I have, it's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And I've gotten to this point recently. I used to go on walks and not see anything. Mm. And now I'm like, I make it a point before I go, I'm going to walk a little slower and I'm going to take more in. Cause I used to, I probably went 10 years on walks with my kids and what have you. And I have never stopped to look at flowers, never stopped to be amazed by how the sunlight comes through the, the trees and how beautiful it looks as you're looking down over a mountainside or something. 
lost on all the beauties of life because my mind was, I was there, but mm-hmm. I wasn't present. My mind was in another, in a whole other atmosphere. And my body was in another, and I wasn't where my feet were. You know, we used to, that's a, it's a, such a good point. We used to live in, in Florida, and we lived on the water. And so I had got a new phone, and I was, I would get up every morning at early, early, early to catch the sunrise. And the sunrise would come up over the water, and it would just make this magical display of colors. And I was so um, intent on getting the perfect picture of this sunrise. And one, it was so massive when it would, when it would come up that it was really hard for me to capture the whole thing in one picture. And so I kept taking all these pictures. I kept getting up early in the morning and I, I just felt like, man, this picture I'm taking just doesn't do it justice. And Pictures were beautiful, but they weren't what I was seeing. And then one day I said, you know what? I'm going to video it so that I can get the whole like panoramic full view of this, of this picture. And maybe, maybe then I can cut it down to the perfect picture. And I videoed it. And after I videoed it, I played it to, to kind of watch what I was, to see if I got the right picture. And when I played it, I heard it. And it was the first time out of all those times waking up to get this picture that I had actually heard the sounds that were in that video. Wow. And the sounds of, I heard kids getting up, getting ready for school. I heard um, nature. I heard the water rippling. I I just heard activity and being able to listen. And I thought, man, I have missed all these sounds. I've been so focused on this one sense of my eyes that I didn't listen mm-hmm. and I didn't enjoy all of it. And so when you when you talk about that walk, that that reminds me of man just being in the moment. And I think a lot of it too uh, goes back to when you when you're in the moment and you're intentional like that, you're more grateful and you get that spirit of gratitude mm-hmm. and just being grateful for. To your point. The leaves. I mean, right now, it couldn't be more beautiful no kidding. where we live. And to be able to go out and the, the weather. How about the weather we've had this last week? Yeah, amazing. But the sunshine, the, the things that we take for granted because we see them every single day, that we just go, we go by and bypass them. And, man, we're, uh, we're blessed. And, uh, but I think that spirit of gratitude really is another thing I'd tell my 18-year-old self is, man, be grateful. Be grateful for every little thing because that attitude of gratitude um, is, is, I think, so important in life. For sure. You know, I'm, I'm a big music guy. and When I was like maybe 15 years old, I was a hairbander. I was Guns N' Roses was my main deal, but I like Poison. And then one of the, the songs that Poison sings, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah. Right? And when something gets stripped away from you and you're never going to have it again, whether it be through death or moving or a breakup or something like that, man, then you sit back and you, you rue the moments that you, you frittered away because you were not present. And as I studied what it takes to be at the highest level of performance in, in my sport, 
the word that came out is from a, a real high-end thought leader, Eckhart Tolle. He's like, the you can't be in the zone or even in that f- deeper state called flow state if you're not in what he calls immersive presence. Mm. If you're not completely and totally in the moment, you can't be in that space. And so Stephen Kotler, who's probably the foremost authority on zone and flow states in the world, he says the reason why like Kelly Slater is in the flow all the time is because if he's not, he's dead Mm. and he's, he's surfing 50 foot waves that if he is not immersively present, he's going to die. These mountain bikers that do these extreme mountain biking, they're addicted to that moment because they are so grounded in immersive presence that they're experiencing the most insane level of presence and they are killing it. 40 miles per hour with literally nine inches of earth to ride their bike on. Mm. So my sport only provides two of the 17 flow triggers. And one of them is the moment, like the moment is so like I'm playing in the masters. That is like, that'll get you in there. (laughs) I mean, big time. So I have to play a golf course that I've dreamed of playing with the, the beauty, the environment, so to speak, or I'm involved in an event that is up to but no more than 20% past my current skill level. Those are the things that push you, that make you have to focus a lot more intently in the moment. But you can't be more than 20% because that's when choking occurs. The science behind choking is when you're past 20%, past your capabilities. Mm. And I was like, Wow. So the difference between surfing and mountain biking and golf is that it's not dangerous enough. There aren't many things that can force you into immediate presence. And because golf takes so long and there's nothing really dangerous about it, we fall asleep at the wheel. Hmm. And there's where, you know, and it's hilarious. The AJGA did an, an extensive test on this by maybe in 08 or 07. And they were noticing that the, the junior golfers playing in their tournaments, they really struggled badly between holes 11 and hole 14. And the question became, why would they be struggling so much? Well, at that point, it's usually about two and a half to three hours in. Have they eaten anything? Have they been drinking anything? Because one of the first things that subtly knocks you out is dehydration mm. and low blood sugar. Before you, before you get hungry, it's already too late. Before you get thirsty, it's already too late. That was interesting. But what they really showed was is that golf requires you to check in and check out. Like you only have to be in for a minute and a half. Mm. And then when you're walking to your next shot or you're waiting for your next shot, you need to be like externally kind of taking it all in taking and not get too focused on yourself, but most people don't know that it's okay to take breaks. They just, they focus, 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 focus. And then at hole 11, they just can't focus anymore. And that led me to like understanding like how all sports, they tax the brain in a time frame, sometimes more physically than others. Like football is certainly more physical than golf. But golf takes longer than football. Mm-hmm. And the level of precision required to be spectacular, outside of maybe the quarterback position, 
golf is one of the most precise sports in the world and the level of acuity and the level of presence required to do it for four straight days in five hour time frames at a time. That is phenomenal amount of mental exercising that you have to learn how to do and to be able to take all of the, the studies about what it takes to be great and then apply it across a gigantic swath of information and technologies and jobs. That's basically how I got to my Ted talk is I wanted to take what has fascinated me about my sport and then bundle it all up Mm. and figure out how we can apply it to our life. And immersive presence is a very challenging thing mentally to do because we like to look forward a lot. Most, most achievers are always looking forward. Not many people struggle by looking backward. Occasionally there's a big event that was a disaster that constantly takes over somebody's mind, but almost always the anxiousness of what's about to come gets more in the mind than where we are right now. So that's a pretty, pretty interesting way you, you viewed it because that's exactly what it takes is that level of presence. Now, now in that, like with the golfer, you always hear about how so much of golf is mental. You obviously being a expert in golf, what's, what's your take on how much is mental and how much is physical? Well, given you can't be a PGA tour player without radical talent. Right, so, that's, mm-hmm. so they have to make that as a the mental piece stands out at every level when everybody's at the same level who wins. That's the difference. It's the mental part. I'm here to tell you that Tiger Woods could have been hung over and non caring and beat me to death playing golf <laughs> because his talent is so much greater than mine. And I think and, or if I played your son right now, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be mental. Mm-hmm. It'd be totally physical. But once you get onto a platform where everybody's on the same talent scale, it's all mental. Yeah. Because even if somebody wants to argue, and there's a lot of people in my industry that say it's the golf swing, it's the mechanics of the motion, it's not mental at all. And I'm like, well, that would be great until you can prove to me that that motion didn't come from the brain in the first place. Mm. And then they shut up because they, <laughs> they actually can't do that. Because what's fascinating about muscle memory is that you can't lose it unless you get struck by lightning or electrocuted or you have an opiate addiction because that disconnects the the transfer of you know muscle memory to the muscles huh. okay what you lose is access to it and one of the greatest lines i've ever heard comes from a great friend of mine Stephen Yellen he says just imagine let's just say for to make it the math simple tiger woods has a million dollars worth of talent in his bank the brain when he is in the right frame of mind and he is present and he is focused on the things that are important right now he has access to all $1 million. If he enters his pin into his account, <laughs> he has a $1 million available to him. But if he recently had an argument with his wife or his child is terminally ill or something really terrible happened this morning and his mind is not all there or his body's hurting or whatever, and he enters that pin the, the wrong part of the brain's engaged, the prefrontal cortex is trying to control the outcome 
a little bit too much. And when the prefrontal cortex gets involved in muscle motion, it intercepts the the muscle memory, the myelin. It intercepts the messages from the brain to the muscles and slows it down significantly. Mm. And so then Tiger would only have access to $250,000 of his talent because of the part of his brain that's trying to control it. Let's say he wasn't hitting his driver very good and he's hit five consecutive drives way right and the next hole, all the trouble's right. Yeah. So the brain tries to perfect. Like, what am I doing wrong? And he's trying to make some mechanical motion changes to help close the club face to make sure it doesn't go right. Well, that's the prefrontal cortex trying to control, mm. trying to be perfect. Mm-hmm. When that swing occurs, it doesn't look right. The timing is off. It looks contrived. It looks disorganized muscularly. And that's a sign the prefrontal cortex got in, involved in the situation. So you don't ever lose muscle memory. You lose access to it. And you lose access to it from interference, whether that's emotional interference, uh, physical interference, or mental interference. Mental interference could be you're uber angry at yourself for hitting a, you miss a three-footer. Or you duff the chip. And, and that f- fury that builds yeah. up inside of you, you know, almost always that anger comes from you weren't present on that shot. And even and your brain was like, hey, let's back off, back off. We're not ready. And you're like, shut up. I'm a professional. <laughs> I can do this. And then the brain hits the shot, and it doesn't work out. And then you go into your subconscious like, I told you, you idiot. Mm. Back off the shot. Now you've caused a stroke. And then that the mind of that person starts to beat themselves up. I knew better. I can't afford to make these stupid mistakes. And not many people can end that chatter in 10 seconds and get back into the game. They just constantly beat themselves down. And the beating down, the mental interference, is what happens to a lot of golfers. And I think it happens to quarterbacks who get on an interception run, they can't shake it, or the second baseman who can't throw it to first base anymore, like Steve Sachs for the Dodgers. He basically was one of the best players in Major League Baseball. All of a sudden, he couldn't throw the ball from second to first, and his career ended. You know, got into his – he had mental interference and couldn't get over it. So those things are really interesting to study. And then when all you have to do is just pull it back a layer and bring it back to everyday life and everything that people struggle with at home, at work, they're all tangibly the same. Yeah. It's like when you're sitting down at work and you've, your marriage is not going well, your kids are struggling at school or, or, or health, or you've made a couple of decisions that you thought were going to be absolutely spot on and they don't pan out at all. And, like, oh my God, I just made I just made highly qualified, great expectation, checked every I, you know, crossed every T, and it failed tremendously. You get bogged down in it and it it impacts the present so much because you're you know, you got your face in your soup. You're just so down. It's yeah. hard to pull yourself <laughs> up and be present when a past mistake is weighing heavily on a present moment or an impending moment is weighing heavily on the present. Mm. And to learn how to be able to block that out or have a system or a process, that was, that was part of what I was trying to do in my TED Talk, was to create a system that you could go to to bring you back to presence. Because that is the key. And when you've, when you've done that, then you're prepared. Mm. And being prepared for the moment so that it takes a lot to knock you out of presence. That's the key. Nobody's perfect. We're humans. We're going to be emotional. We're going to get mental. We're going to get injured. So we're going to have all three of them at some point. 
but you want to have you want to make sure that when you're not able to be present it's because it is a life altering event not something so frivolous that we're just making a big deal mm-hmm. out of right now like is it going to matter to you in 5 years if it doesn't then it shouldn't be on your plate that long that's really hard for people to understand because in the moment it's a big deal but in 5 years from now is it a big deal a couple of the things in my life i would have to say are still with me 5 years later like two but mm. sometimes I've had, I've had things interfere with my rounds of golf and tournament play that literally didn't even matter five hours later. And I'm like, those are the things that people have to get out of their habitual station. You know, you talked about, uh, in one of your other podcasts, you talked about a, a boxer and how a boxer can't get mad when they get hit in the face. And they got to be able to, you know, just keep going, not let that anger. A, a mad boxer is never going to win the, win the fight. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's funny how anger can, in so many things we do in life, can impact us. And holding on to that anger, holding on to anger that maybe somebody else did something to you. Yeah. And your 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 point of, man, is it really going to be worth it five years from now? But so often we hang on to something or hang on to that anger of somebody else. And if we would just let go, the impact it would have on us. First of all, in our performance and everything we do, but the impact we can have on others. But man, we get so mad and angry and want to hold on to somebody who's hurt us. Yeah. And you know, you you hear the the line that hurt people hurt people. And man, just being able to forgive and forget is yeah. so powerful. Yeah, I think that I, I do. A, I always say, my mom is the beacon the poster child for forgiveness. <laughs> and of all the things that I Mine try too. to, Mine I, too. I just like going, how do, my, my mom will like, she'll get hurt. I mean, obviously we're human. We get, and she will quickly forgive. And now she, she'd be more inclined to say it's, it's very important to forgive, but it's not so important to forget. Just don't let it linger in your head. Mm-hmm. As in like, you just can't afford to let this person, you can't give this person or this thing that much trust anymore. doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven them, mm-hmm. but you can't put yourself back in the situation again. Yeah. So to be able to forgive is really important. To be able to forget, that's a little bit of a different, that's a more of a time-based thing. You know, I would imagine uh, if there's been a level of cheating, whether it be in business or in a relationship, in which you, you've chosen to forgive that person. Yeah, but you're not going to forget that. But, you're, but you have to then, you forgive them. They're still part of it. But now you're watching with a different eyeball. Yeah. Right there. And that's where I'm just kind of like, you know, I can imagine that there is, it's easy to forgive. It's not easy to forgive. It's it's a hard skill to learn, but it's an important skill to learn. But to forget, that takes time. Yeah. That's where time time heals all wounds, right? Yeah. Like the, the moment hurts, you forgive. But then time washes away that that level of pain. Yeah. Especially if that particular person or thing proves sturdy over a long period of time. It's like a moment. That's why forgiveness is so powerful. Second chances are so powerful because when you get a second chance, the most important thing to remember in life is that we're going to make mistakes. Just don't make them twice. Yeah. It's okay to make a thousand mistakes, but make sure there are a thousand different ones. Yeah. Not, not, That's good. not like 200 that you've done five times. <laughs> so, or five of them that you've done 200 times. The, the most important piece to my podcast 
according to the feedback that I get through emails and, and social media interaction, is the piece on perseverance. And one of the, the most important things for me is, is like, I want to hear, because it's so important for everybody out there, what's that one thing that you faced that when you were going through it, you weren't sure you were going to get through it? And it was scary as heck. But when you got through it, it kind of steeled your resolve to know that you could handle anything. What's that one thing? Even if it's more than one, but what's that one thing you remember that really shook you that has also steeled your resolve now? You know, I'd say it's, I'd say it's two things. Um, two things come to mind. Um, first, you talked about it earlier. I started in the car business washing cars at a, uh, in high school and was able to work my way up through college and was in senior management uh, as I was going through college and was able to, to excel at a very young age. And I, uh, I had got lucky and hit a penny stock. And so not only was I pretty good in the car business, but I had uh, some funds to be able to, to buy my own dealership. And so the guy that I had worked for most of my career, I had began talking to about partnering together and buying a dealership together. And I thought this was going to be the greatest plan ever. And so I went to him. He, he heard me out. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. But then nothing was happening. Like I kept going to meet with them and I could tell, I, I don't know if he was just uneasy with the idea, but nothing, nothing was progressing. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go check on this again because I'd really like to buy a, a dealership. And I went in and checked with him and I was running the dealership for him and he fired me in that meeting. And so I went from, I thought I was, you know, a star in the car business. I thought I was the MVP mm-hmm. and he fired me and, um, he, he fired me because really, because he didn't want to buy a dealership with me. And just instead of telling me, he fired me. Wow. And, and at that period of time in my life, that was, I thought, man, my career's over. Like, I just got fired. And it was a foreign concept for me. Like, I, I had done so well in the car business, I never even thought about losing my job. And I thought this guy's going to be my partner, and instead he fired me. Yeah. And so, and I got home, was able to reflect on it, and kind of change my mindset. And I said... His decision, I'm not going to let define me. And in less than a year, I bought my first dealership and became the youngest Ford dealer, non-succession Ford dealer in Ford's history. And it was it was that moment, though, that, man, I thought, my career is over in auto, or it's going to take me a really long time to recover and rebuild from this. And then I just said, I'm not going to let that define me, and I'm not going to let that become a failure in my career. I got fired. I'm going to embrace it. And I actually was able to, when I did my application with Ford, I told them what happened. And they said, no problem. They still, they still approved me, and, and uh, it was no problem. Wow. And the second thing is, after I bought that dealership, uh, I bought the dealership with my sister, and then my, uh, my entire family all moved here. This dealership was in Smithville, Tennessee. So we all moved to Smithville, and we were living in Arizona. Uh, we all had, you know, different houses, et cetera, and families, and we all moved to Smithville. Well, when we first got to Smithville, 
we didn't know where we want to live in town. And we all, my mom and dad, my two sisters, and myself, and all of our families, all moved into this one house together. Wow. And we were, were very close, <clears throat> a very close family. But we all moved in together. And the plan was, we're going to buy this house, and then we'll all figure out where we want to live, and somebody will, will stay in that house. Well, that house burned to the ground. And so wow. my entire family lost everything we had because it was all in this one house. Oh. Everybody had all of our possessions in <sighs> that one house. And, but you learn when you all go through it together, it's just material things. It really, at the end of the day, it really didn't matter. And to be honest with you, a couple of my sister, uh, one of my sisters and myself, we could we could afford to get rid of a few things anyways. Yeah. <laughs> we had too much junk <laughs> laid around anyways, so it was a good cleanse. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but going through a fire and losing it all um, just gives you a whole new perspective and a whole new. Uh, yeah. You know, we talked about gratitude earlier. Um, man, you learn to be grateful when you lose it all. You got that right. Wow, now oh, that's something right there. Good gracious. Second half of the show is what do we do to recharge our batteries? So we have definitely covered what you do to drain your batteries. <laughs> and likely, uh, for a history of life, sociologically speaking, humans like to do like-minded things with a lot of people, which is why 110,000 people show up to a football game, 80,000 people show up to see Taylor Swift, people go to Broadway every day to see a play, movies, etc. I love the second half of this show because it's it's... It's what ties people together in the listening portion of it. When you were growing up, who was your favorite music acts? Ooh. So, man, I go across so many different genres in music. But growing up, I would say everywhere from Pearl Jam, Nirvana, um, Biggie Smalls. Yeah. Um, man, let me, George Strait. Bob Marley. I mean, I, I think I've covered the full gamut, and then throw in some church music in, in there, yeah. too. Um, so really, I, I would say across the board, but all of those, I can still listen today and just love that music. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Like, I've had three bands. Like, the first band that moved my life was Guns N' Roses, mm. and the level of rebelliousness that Axel had and the energy in which he fervently showed it. I mean, he just spoke to me. A small-town kid in Pennsylvania didn't want to... Like, I just wanted to break out of my small town so bad. And he was the lightning rod for me to get out. Mm. Just the way he... He just walked around with his middle finger up, so to speak, everywhere he went. <laughs> and it was like... That just was like... He didn't care. He was going to do it. That resonated with me. Then Pearl Jam became... So impactful, and the messaging. I'm a big lyric guy, so Eddie Vedder's lyrics, especially in his first three albums, were so deep and well thought out. Like he was almost like he was singing to me, like he was my soundtrack. And then I became a massive, and still am, no doubt, biggest band for me is Tool. I'm going to see him this weekend oh, in nice. Knoxville, and I'm going to see him twice in the in the in the winter. Lyrics. It's just a different ball game to me. Like the music is such a huge part of my life, but I just like 
I've only gotten in the country maybe eight years ago. Okay. Kenny Chesney. And I'm like, I like the island country Kenny Chesney, not the beginning Kenny Chesney. Yeah. And the Zach Brown. But it's up until my kids fell in love with this guy named Morgan Wallen. <laughs> and I like, I'm like, oh God, country music. And it's, I have to play it. And, like, and next thing you know, like, I can't help myself. I think that he's unbelievably gifted and talented. He doesn't really have many subjects he speaks on, but he knows how to weave a story. Mm-hmm. And, and I t- like so, and I love what music does. It kind of gives you like a religious experience when yeah. you go. So my boys love Morgan Wallen and they love Hardy. And Hardy was in town this past weekend, and it was uh, a a birthday gift from the the lady that I've been dating and it was just so phenomenal. But what was really great for me was to watch my sons go through that experience of like somebody's song is actually resonating through their mm. body and coming back out of their voice as they're just living the concert. I had never been in a situation where I could because I did take them to see Morgan Wild, but we sat in two different places. Mm. But to see that's what I was like when I went to see Guns N' Roses the first time. When I saw Pearl Jam, I've seen them 15 times. But the first time I saw them, I was like, I was like, I was transported out. And it was such a cool experience. I, I was just so elated to watch it. And music just does something to people. What's the greatest concert you've ever been to see? Oh, man. So we actually went... Uh we went and saw Morgan Wallen. We we took a trip to to California. We figured everybody from California is coming here right now to Nashville, so maybe we'll do something different. Go out to California. So we went out to California this summer, and uh, we saw Morgan Wallen at the new uh, stadium in Los Angeles. So far, so far, <clears throat> yeah. and it was uh, it was incredible. I mean, he was he was great. But um, I would say for me, the most memorable concert. Is uh, it wasn't a concert, but we were we were in Miami, and there was a Formula E race, and we had sponsored a uh, we had sponsored part of the race, and so we were on a boat in Miami overlooking the Formula E race, and downtown Miami on the water, and Phil Collins came on our boat, and Phil Collins came in, and Phil Collins' son was performing that night on the boat. And Phil Collins' son sang In the Air Tonight to Phil sitting in the front row. Wow. And so to watch him for the first time hear his son perform In the Air Tonight was a magical moment. Just to sit there and watch a son to his dad. And um, I can't even just describe the magic that happened. Hmm. Just being... Just being able to witness that, yeah. and it was uh, it was magical. So I, I'd say that was probably my most memorable moment. performance yeah. moment in music. But I agree with you. Music has a way of of uh, transforming you, moving you, and I think again, it's when they're using their talents, and you can just when a musician is in that flow state. Yeah. It just moves all through your body, yep. you know, and um, ma- music is magical. It really is. Like, I'm, I went to see Taylor Swift this summer. Mm. I'm not a Swifty, right? You'll never hear me driving around like this Taylor <laughs> Swift in my car. 
I was so mesmerized and blown away by her gifts. She's got it. She's got it. Mm. I walked out of there and I'm like, that might have been the greatest show that I've ever seen. Now I love tool and I've seen a bunch of Pearl Jam shows and guns and I've seen some awesome concerts and I think I'm supposed to have a bias toward them because they're so much my favorite. Yeah. But to be almost like a supporting cast to go to that concert, to be that blown away, that was something I'll never forget. Like, it takes a lot to shock me. That was an incredible performance. Oh, she is. I mean, you can tell why there's so many Swifties. It's yeah. just she is. I'm kind of the same way. Um, I don't listen to a lot of her music, but... Uh, but man, when she performs, it is incredible. Yeah. I got to see in uh, somewhere around, I'm going to say it was 99, 2000, right, right around there. Um, there's this little country music bar in Oklahoma City called Inca Hoots. And Inca Hoots, I don't know, maybe a thousand people can fit in there. And Prince came and did oh a show at Inca Hoots. How about that? Um, he performed in Oklahoma City, and after the show, he came and did an after show at Inca Hoots. And being able to have Prince in front of less than a 1,000 people. I can't imagine. Oh, it was unreal. Um, and you talk about a performer, somebody who just puts everything into what they do and their craft. It was oh, so memorable. Yeah, people give Jimi Hendrix and Clapton the 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 crown for being the greatest guitarist ever, but I'm not sure Prince mm. is in that group, man. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's so freaking unbelievable. Wow. How about uh, sports? Who are your favorite sports teams growing up? Uh, definitely, I grew up in Oklahoma, so definitely the Sooners. Bosworth? Uh, big, uh, <laughs> big Sooner fan. Uh, Bosworth, so uh, my dad uh, was a business partner with Barry Switzer. So no in 19, kidding. yeah, 19, I believe it was 87. So I would have been 10 years old. It was 87 or 88. Oklahoma and Texas were number one and number two. And I got to go to the Cotton Bowl and be, I got to go to the OU Texas game at the Cotton Bowl wow. and be on the sidelines. Ugh. This was Bosworth. Spencer Tillman was the running back. Keith Jackson was the tight end. Jamel Holloway. Jamel cool. Holloway was the quarterback. Jamel Holloway had me go get him two hot dogs in the middle of the game. Um, he gave me his towel, and Spencer Tillman gave me his wristband. Um, I mean, as a 10-year-old in Oklahoma, Oklahoma won the game. And after the game, uh, we're walking into the, um, to the locker room, and I'm walking beside Barry Switzer, and they stop him to get an a interview for the Barry Switzer show. And Barry Switzer says, you know, before I give this interview, I want to introduce you to my friend Chad. And that was actually my first time to be on TV or radio. And, uh, man, it was such a magical moment that I'll never, I'll never forget. Yeah. Wow. And that's like, it's interesting. You know, back in those days, sounds like I'm like an old grandpa now. <laughs> But college football has changed so much since that mo- those moments, because in that in that window of time, it was essentially Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, mm-hmm. Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and then it was like Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame, USC, 
And the, those twelve teams were in the top twelve every year, and it just kind of yeah. it just kind of rotated around. Sometimes somebody got above somebody else, but generally speaking, those twelve teams. And then all of a sudden, it changed. Yeah. And now, and like every one of those schools has gone through a down period. And for those Alabama fans out there that can't quite remember, there was a moment <laughs> in time where Alabama wasn't very good at all. It's yeah. hard to believe that, but they they weren't very good at all. Every team has gone through what would be considered an almost an impossible to believe cataclysmic fall from grace, and that wasn't that wasn't even a thought back in the mid eighties because mm. every because of how the scholarships worked oh, out yeah. and how they could stockpile them and like the idea today that somebody would go to the University of Alabama knowing that they were only going to play their senior year is almost laughable. Yeah. Because I think really it was right about ninety one or ninety two where somebody's like, "I'm not sitting here riding the pine until I'm a senior. I'm going to Louisville, or I'm going to go to Virginia Tech." And all of a sudden, Virginia Tech came on the map, and Louisville came on the map, and all these secondary teams that have stuck their face in the college football world, Utah. They're like, "I'm going where I can play." Yeah, and it's the transfer portal. I mean, the, the, obviously the transfer portal and the fact that. Coaches can transfer. You know, I'm obviously a big Oklahoma fan, so we went through the the Lincoln Riley and uh, Lincoln Riley taking, you know, taking off in the in the middle of the night and then uh, taking Caleb Williams with them. Yeah. Um, but the transfer portal, you know, definitely evens things out, and coaches can transfer, players can transfer. It's the wild wild west in, in it, college football. It really yeah, is. It is the wild wild west. Is that the is that the greatest game you've ever seen? That's Oklahoma, Texas. That's game. definitely the greatest game. I, uh, but I, I'm so passionate about. I love college football. I love it. So, so for the last seven years in a row, my son and daughter and myself, we all go to OU Texas. And uh, two years ago, Oklahoma was down 27 points. About half the stadium from the Oklahoma side. You know, they split the field down the 50 yard line. About half the Oklahoma fans had left. I mean, we were getting blown out. And Caleb Williams comes in. It was his first first play at Oklahoma. And he runs a touchdown up the middle, about an 80-yard run, and starts to electrify the crowd, but we're still down, you know, 20 points. And Caleb Williams had one of the most magical performances, bringing Oklahoma back. Oklahoma won the game. And um, being able to be there, and then after the game, we rushed out on the field. And my son at the time would have been – 12 or so. Mm-hmm. So it was like a replay of, of me, yeah. you know, in 87. Now it's him. And he's running out there. They're putting the golden hat on. And he's in the middle of the picture. He, uh, the, the running back who, uh, who scored the winning touchdown, Brooks, he's given his interview. And my son Cruz goes up and just puts his hand on his shoulder and just stand there smiling while he's giving his interview. <laughs> it's a, man, it just reminded me of, of those days. So, um, I love college football, but those moments getting to spend that, that time with your family, I got to do it with my dad and now getting to do it with, with my kids is special. Yeah, there's no doubt that the NFL might be the biggest thing, but there is nothing like your initial love for your college sport. Oh, yeah. I mean, I went to Mississippi State, but I'm a Penn Stater. I'm like, that's where I grew up. I have so many fond memories with my dad and going to the big games all my, most of my you know, adolescent life was 
the leave on Friday in the RV, spend oh, yeah. the night, you know, go to the game, spend the night, drive home on Sunday. Like I look forward to those moments. Like I, I look back on those moments like they were happened yesterday. Mm. To know, like, there's a level of passion because you're you're in. It's a different level of investment in college sports than it is yeah. professional sports, yeah. especially if you go to school at at a place. You know, I go to Mississippi State. I say like my heart's in Penn as a Penn Stater, but my brain is a Mississippi State Bulldog. I've gone to more Mississippi State games. And, you know, it's your life. You have all your friends. You know some of the yeah. players. You just have a different level of investment, and the passion is different. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the NFL is great. The Titans are great. I'm a Bronco fan. The Broncos are great. But when I go to the games, it isn't even close to the same. I, so, I grew up in Oklahoma. So, Oklahoma football was just everything. And college, you either read rooted for Dallas, but – we hated Texas so much that it was even hard to to root for the Dallas Cowboys because they were still Texas. Yeah, um, and so it, you know, and then I went to Oklahoma. My daughter went to Oklahoma, and uh, it's just different for me. But I didn't grow up around a pro team as much, and yeah. so we go to a lot of the Titans games, and I'm I'm trying to enjoy the Titans games as much as I, I do Oklahoma. But uh, but it's different. Yeah, it's, it's really different. different, no doubt. What's your favorite movie? Well, my favorite movie would ha- would have to be uh, Sound of Freedom. Mm-hmm. So, Sound of Freedom. I am a associate producer, and Sound of Freedom was uh, was a box office hit this summer. And it's a movie. What I love most about the movie is it's a movie about a really, really important topic, which is child trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I got involved with the movie because. It just moved me when I learned how big the problem is. Um, I uh, I just had to get involved, and the U.S. is the number one importer of child trafficking, and Mexico is the number one exporter. And if you think about that, a lot of times you hear about child trafficking, and you think about it's would never happen to us. It would never happen near me or it's, you know, it's somewhere far away and it happens every day all around us. Um, and so that for me, but the movie was just so well done. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've got a movie that's so well done, but it's also about a purpose and it serves something bigger than just spending two hours to, to entertain you. It's a, it's a movement to make a difference about a really, really important topic. So I'd have to say Sound of Freedom, but um, beyond Sound of Freedom, I love every sports movie. I think every sports movie I've ever watched, I love. Yeah. I'm, I'm a sports movie guy, but I'm also like, I love comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, so funny to say, but Wedding Crashers. I <laughs> love Wedding Crashers. <laughs> it is it's, it's, one it's, of the best. It's the greatest funny movie uh, I've ever seen. I love it. Vince Vaughn kills me because I love hilarious. Nobody rants like Vince Vaughn. I mean, Dennis Miller's a good ranter. Chris Rock can rant, but Vince Vaughn delivers the. I think it's his facial expressions. He is so good in that movie. He's so good. So good. Oh, yeah, that's the funniest movie I've ever seen. Uh, It cracks me up so bad. I love that guy. Oh man. So to me, movies are also can transport you. You know, like Forrest Gump was a big deal to me. Yeah. Gladiator. Gladiators are really like there's a moment in Gladiator, I think is the greatest movement moment in any movie, is when, you know, 
crows down there. He just slayed them all. Oh yeah. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix comes down onto the onto the pit, and he takes off his helmet. That moment, right moment, right there. Oh yeah. It doesn't get any, you know, because it's not good. Like, I, and I know that revenge is a really addictive, but not good, almost a corrosive yeah. trait. But for anybody who's ever been wronged or anybody who's ever been an underdog or been slighted by the people with more power, so to speak, and then you have the ability to turn it around, that moment, I've probably, I have that actually recorded on my phone, that little two-minute sequence. I watch that every once in a while because every once in a while life will throw you a curveball. Oh, yeah. And you have to, you have to find a way to overcome it. And although it's a movie, that's a, that's a pretty harsh kick in the teeth to go from the the you know, the leader of the of the army to a gladiator who's basically oh, yeah. just being there to be killed uh, and have your your wife and your kid killed. I mean that that just takes it to a whole new level. And if you see somebody overcome that in a film, it gives you the impetus that you need, and it gives you a little energy, just like a concert does. Oh, I love the underdog. I, I think in I think in business. Um, in just about everything we do, there's always I always look for the underdog angle. Um, yeah. I always I've always felt like the underdog in so much of what I do, and the underdog is what motivates me. And so I resonate with the underdog stories because mm. I feel like I can I can put myself into that story, and um, I love when the underdog is victorious. Yeah, man, um, you're basically that's what you're doing right now. You're you're taking on the established establishment yeah and you're trying to yank the carpet out from underneath them and yeah they have all of the history and they have all of the normal ways and humans are creatures of habit so we're we're used to the habit of going in for the five hour Mm -hmm. you know root canal so to speak and you're taking you're you're taking on the big dogs as the underdog and really radically successful at it which is really fun to see but yeah it's 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 so true. Like the, oh, I love the, but you know, I'll tell you about the automotive industry with dealers specifically. Um, dealers are some of the most entrepreneurial people you'll ever meet, but they're also some of the most giving. That's, that's one of the things I love about the auto industry. The auto industry gets painted with a, with a bad picture because we have such a broken sales process that takes so long. It's so filled with anxiety. It is, it is the one thing that people focus on, but if they knew how good a people actually most automotive dealers are, automotive is one of the largest employers in the in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, tax revenue, it's one of the largest tax generators in every single local economy. The automotive industry generates more taxes than just about any anything else. Um, it literally is the lifeblood of America. Uh, it keeps America going. And if you looked at the number of baseball teams, uh, bands, local uh, community organizations that car dealers support, that the car dealer's name on the back of their jerseys, or often they don't even put their name on the back of the jersey, but if you knew how much they contribute to their local, um, their local neighborhoods and local communities, you'd be shocked. Yeah. Um, I mean, dealers are just great great people. And that's what I'm also passionate about is to try to right-size this industry to get this cloud of negativity around the experience away from us so that we can focus on 
how good our industry is and all the things the automotive industry does for people. Hmm. I'll tell you the, the one other thing about automotive is the hours they have to work to serve people. Um, car dealers are open when people are off work. So after work, when you're off, they're open. They're open till nine o'clock at night. They're open every weekend. Mm-hmm. It's a grind for people working in automotive because to be there to serve the consumer and serve our communities, man, we put in long hours in the automotive industry. And so I love the automotive industry. I don't want, I don't want my comments about the experience to, to, um, you know, uh, shade the fact that, man, I, I love car dealers. I love the automotive industry and it's such a great industry that, uh, I hope we can continue to make a difference so that people enjoy the car buying process. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's a, it's a beautiful, like you're taking something that you're passionate about and you're, you found a weak spot that's tarnishing the, the image mm-hmm. and you're taking it upon yourself to make a 1% move to the better because you recognize that it's getting a bad, it's getting a bad shake, yeah. so to speak. And it's, it's very admirable because, you know, I, I think that I, going into this conversation, I'd, I've never had a really good vibe about the car industry mm. because I don't like the feeling that I get yeah. when I go by it. Right. But after listening to your story and understand, actually I would have to say, I mean, when I did a lot of my investigation on what it is that you do and how you've gotten here, uh, I was like, wow, this is going to be interesting because there's probably going to be something I'm going to learn about something I hate doing. <laughs> like the going to get a car is right up there with going to the dentist for me. Yeah. Right. I hate going to the dentist. And I, and I just think that this is an important message because almost probably everything, almost everything, has a positive to it. But sometimes we see only the negative. People would rather go to the dentist, sit in the middle seat on a international flight, and do their taxes than buy a car. <laughs> That's literally. I don't know if any of those three things are interesting to you, but they're not to me. Yeah. But they'd rather do those than have to go buy a car. Um, so... That gives you an idea of how, how people feel about the experience. The middle seat gone to Morocco. <laughs> no, thank That's you. Tough. That is tough. Final question. <clears throat> One of my uh, longstanding stock questions at the end comes from Jason Silva. He's a, a thought leader. He was did the he did the TV show Brain Games and stuff like that. He's a real introspective dude. And he was I follow him on Facebook and he said this message and he said, Yeah, we all experience three deaths. The, the first death is the, the day we find out we're going to die. The second death is the day that we die. And the third death is the last time anybody ever mentions your name. Mm-hmm. And then he brings the, the, the phone right up to his face and says, what are you doing to extend that third life? And that really got me thinking. It's been on my That's mind heavy. Uh, for like seven years. Like it was like, it's at least seven years old. I watch it probably once a month. When you think about that statement, and basically, it's a legacy statement, so to speak. What are you doing to extend that third life? What does that mean to you? Mm. There's, a, there's a lot there. But I think, um, first of all, I hope that the difference I've made, well, I hope after that third death, I hope I see a lot of those people up in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I hope I've been able to be a witness while I'm here for people. And both of my grandpas are both Southern Baptist preachers, growing up in Oklahoma, two Southern Baptist preachers. So I hope I can honor my roots mm-hmm. and, uh, 
and I can I can tell people what I believe is my greatest superpower, which is which is Jesus. Um, but while I'm here, I hope I can just help people to be intentional, help people to, we talked about it earlier, just embrace those moments and um, don't take anything for granted. Take the time to enjoy every single second and every single second for all it's worth. We talked about how you've got that mental picture. I was trying to get that perfect picture. Or when you're on your walks, man, you're getting your exercise, but all this beauty around you that you're missing. And so I hope I can help a few people while I'm here to be intentional and live in the moment where when they are and they're having that moment, there's a little twinkle of, man, I miss that guy. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. So true. Bonus question. You get uh, you get to take three people with you, and you get one round of golf, one last round of golf. Oh man! Where are you going, and who are your who are your three partners? So I think this is probably a this is probably a easy one to say, but I haven't I've I've played a lot of golf, but I haven't played a lot of golf courses, mm-hmm. and um, most of the golf I've played, I've played probably ninety percent of all the rounds I've played, I have played with my dad. And so the moments out on the golf course I've had with my dad and the hard times he's given me out on the golf course. Um, so he'd, he'd definitely be one I, I, have, to, I have to take um, and just to have more of those moments. But I'd, I'd probably say I'd take Elon Musk. I'd, and he cannot be a good golfer. No, There's no way he's no a good way. golfer. <laughs> no way. No way. So he just gets to ride in the car. But I'd probably say Tiger... Elon, no, I'd say Michael Jordan, Elon Musk, and my dad would be my three. And I would say Pebble Beach. I did Pebble Beach um, earlier in the year with uh, the John Maxwell team, and Pebble Beach to me was just magical. It uh, it just left an impression on me that was, uh, I loved it. I loved every second. I probably had the worst golf game I've ever played, but I was just enjoying that course and that scenery and the history and it was it to me it was magical uh and i'm sure there's other courses i know there's a lot of other courses that that do that but that was the first one where i'd been that just did that to me so Mm -hmm. i'd go back there yeah it's fascinating to me i've probably i've probably asked that question 95 times on the show and if you would ask anybody before you sit down what has to be the winner? Everybody's like, it has to be Augusta, Augusta. National. But Pebble Beach is winning by a landslide hmm. over Augusta National on this. And I've actually had more people say Cypress Point than Augusta National. And Cypress Point's my favorite. Yeah. It is uh, It is everything that Pebble Beach is, but better. But I do think Pebble Beach has the greatest hole in the world, hole eight. I think hole eight is the greatest golf hole oh. on, a, on this planet. And Pebble Beach is... You know, it's when I played it in 1999, the level of care that they took of the golf course compared to what it is on a daily basis today is like unbelievably different. So, like, I one of my best players that I coach, his name is Jackson Harrington. He's there right now, and he, he played yesterday, and he was with the caddy whisper, who was his caddy, who videotapes every shot and creates a little video for you at the end. Like okay. A, a hits every the video. He records every shot that you play. Wow. And he compresses it into like a ten minute reel, right? And I'm sitting there looking at it. It looks like it's ready for the U.S. Open right now. Wow. 
And it's, it's, it's just what it is every day. And to know that they've, I know that the management has taken it over and made it that way. Probably about 2003, they turned the volume up on what it was going to be like on a day-to-day experience. But when I think back to like how majestic it is when you got the seals barking, mm. like they're in that little, that six, seven, eight, nine yeah. area, which is probably the greatest run of holes in, in the world. You factor all that in with the seals barking, the wind, the waves crashing. And then when I came up 18, the tide was coming in and those waves crash up against the, the wall and the, like the spray of the waves come out into the fairway. And I got, I got like a little misted on as I was walking up the, the fairway <laughs> on 18. And there's just, like you said, it, there's the history of all the major championships with all the great winners, all the greatest winners, Woods, Nicholas, Watson, you name it, they've won it there. And then you have the, the unparalleled beauty of Mother Nature mm. and the collision of ocean and, and land. And then you're usually with people that it matters with. Yep. You know, that's a pretty intoxicating co- cocktail oh, yeah. of life occurrences being smashed together in one place. And because Pebble Beach, although expensive, is open to the public, it's a place that everybody can go. Not everybody can go to Augusta National. Not everybody can go to Cypress Point. And then, and, you know, and then you're left with basically Pebble Beach and St. Andrews. And those are like, those two are the predominant number one and number two in my discussions when I ask about that because everybody can go to them and, and the access is for everybody. You know, and I think the there's something about when you're there and in those that it helps you to get into that just you're just in awe of so much stuff and you're taking it all in that. There's a lot of those moments that we can experience in life if we just, if we're wide open and we're and we're intentional, right? You, we talked about being with just the right people and the right setting. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about wine. Um, sitting around a bottle of wine and a nice dinner, you can you can have that moment if you're intentional about it. But so often we just bypass it. We're so busy that give me wine for. Not to feed my soul, but to get me drunk or some other reason. But yeah. when we're looking for soul food, man, soul food is everywhere out there. And that's what I love about a concert. I love about a, a magical course like that is they put you in that moment where you're in the right, just, you know, the right state of mind to appreciate yeah. all that's around you. And I remember at Pebble Beach, I played, I, I am telling you, the worst round ever. Uh, my poor caddy, after about 15, he would say, you want me to go get that ball? <laughs> he, was, he, he was just about giving up on me. Um, but on 18, we're coming in, and we were one of the last of the day. And so there's a lot of people gathered around. There's Right around 18, there's those, uh, like, lodging. Yeah. And so there's all these people sitting out there. And I don't know, I'm probably 200 out on 18, and the uh, the caddy tells me to – to hit a four iron and I hit this four iron and there's a big tree right on the right side of the green and my ball draws right around that tree and lands about 
two foot from the hole, and it was by far my best shot of the day. And the, the people who were out there started clapping. Oh, man. It doesn't get <laughs> oh, any better. It was a moment, man. Heck it was yeah. so – and it couldn't have been better on the 18th hole to, to leave with that moment. But uh, so special. Yeah. So special. It's interesting how what you, you mentioned that, and I didn't get into wine. I don't know why. But one of the things that makes wine so interesting is because it's art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's – um, you know, it, it comes from – you know, somebody's studied what they want the wine to be, and they wait for the right moment for the grapes to be ready, and it's their personality, yeah, that comes out into the wine, and then it's bottled, and then it sits for a little bit, and then you get it, and then somebody's heart and soul, yeah, is in that, and then you're sitting down with a table full of what would be considered your heart and soul, and you're. And obviously, the the wine allows you to take away some of the the nerves or the social anxieties mm. that come with being with you know you know being with a group of people, and it just takes that edge off. And then, oftentimes, when somebody asks people, "What's the greatest bottle of wine you've ever had?" Oftentimes, it is not the greatest bottle of wine that they've ever had. It's the moment, moment, the greatest moment that they had, in which wine was the was a major impetus mm-hmm. to the conversation and how it just kind of glues people together. Obviously, they have to have a passion for it or a like for it. And obviously, you get somebody who doesn't like alcohol, it's not going to be the difference. But I mean, you get people all together, and man, it's like this, it's like that in, the interesting little serum that gets thrown into the oh, yeah. event that magnifies it. And it's, you know, that's what it's, it's like communitas is what it really is. It brings a community of people together and all of a sudden it's like it binds you through the art Mm. and it gets you thinking and talking because it's not something you're there for to get drunk on. It's like, it's part of the meal. It's part of the experience. And that's why I love it so much is because it's not just that it's alcohol. It's like somebody's heart and soul in a bottle that is then I'm go. I've chosen, I've chosen this person's soul to uncork and pull out to put in ours and that nourishes the conversation and all the other past moments with these people or the future moments with these people are sealed up in that particular art form. And as it is, I'm learning about myself. I just thought about it like right now, I'm more artsy than I thought. Mm. Right. Because music moves me. Movies move me to be, a better version of myself and the art of wine moves me to be a better friend, a better listener, a, a better speaker, a, a better dad, better friend, because it uh, helps us bind ourselves to a moment. And those moments are what keep us going. Oh yeah. Well, as a golf coach too, you, you're constantly looking for, how do you how do you bring out that art in your student? Yeah. How do you help them find their passion or find that one thing that's keeping them from excelling? Um, the arts, though, man, the arts are. I have a huge appreciation for the arts. Whether I mean, same point, music, uh, art, wine, mm-hmm. uh, but just people who put their passion into something. And I think that's one of the reasons why wine is corked is it takes a, takes a minute to open it. And so it's that minute that they're opening it when you can think, 
man, let's let's really enjoy this wine instead of just like a twist off and throw it away. Yeah, and and start drinking. No, take the time to enjoy it, savor the moment, and make it a moment. No you know? doubt, no doubt. Well, Chad, how can my how can my listeners find out about your company and the best way to implement it so that they can get their car in a much cheaper, faster, and efficient process. Yeah, so you can go to carsaver.com. That's the easiest way to, to find us. and uh, Or you can send me an email at ccollier at carsaver.com, or I'm happy to give you my phone number, 615-587-2912. Call me, text me, any way you, you feel comfortable, and would love to help you out. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. What a compelling story it is, and I'm, I'm grateful to have had had the opportunity to hear your story, buddy. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you. This show is brought to you by Acres Media Solutions. With over a decade of industry experience, our company helps bring your podcast to life. Whether you're a seasoned media personality or a beginner with a laptop and a story, Acres Media Solutions can find what works for you. We are client-focused. That means we partner with you from the ground up, fostering the podcast journey from idea all the way to distribution. To learn more, visit AkersMediaSolutions.com. That's A-K-E-R-S-M-E-D-I-A-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S.com. Acres Media Solutions, podcast from the ground up.